Well, this is Dead Center Live, and we have conversations this and every Saturday at this time. And uh, usually we're live. This day we're not. It's, of course, this is airing. Many of you listen by the podcast now, and I always encourage you to subscribe because maybe you're not available on Saturday when the show airs. You go to edstetzerlive.com, uh, click through the Moody Radio app. You can subscribe to all the different podcasts at Moody Radio. But since this is airing over the July 4th extended weekend, this is not a live show. And But it's an important conversation that we're having. Uh, and you can download the podcast anytime, listen live on the radio, and more. Uh, lots of talk in the last few weeks and months as the Supreme Court has been releasing case after case. And so we wanted to bring in somebody who could give us some insight on what's, what exactly is going on. And what does this mean for the future of our nation, for those of us of practicing robust faith, for those of us who have religious liberty concerns? Well, Eric Patterson is the executive vice president of the Religious Freedom Institute. His interest in the intersection is intersection of religion, ethics, foreign policy. Uh, he's informed actually by two stints in the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Political Military Affairs. He served over 20 years as an officer and commander in the Air National Guard, also served as a White House fellow working for the director of U.S. person of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, and the Religious Freedom Institute is going to and Eric are going to give us some guidance today to understand some of these some of these issues. We're, we we're going to get to uh, the conversation about uh, Roe v. Wade in the course of the show. Of course, Dobbs is the context of that. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But this has been a uh, quite a significant string of rulings in and around issues of uh, religious liberty about how we can engage, not engage, government funding for for well, well let's look, let's go through them rather than me frame this out let's just go through of some of those things as well eric thanks for joining us on the program and giving us some some guidance here uh we know the one of those liberty issues that kind of came forward uh struck down maine's ban on using public funds for religious schools can you tell us a little bit about the significance of this what this means give us some details and background on this case and why it matters Ed, first, let me just say thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. And the case that you're talking about is Carson v. Macon, which was just decided this week. And let's take a step back. In the 19th century, there were a set of laws passed all across the country that are we call them Blaine Amendments after the Speaker of the House, James G. Blaine. And the basic principle there at the time was to keep Catholic schools from getting government funds. This was a a, a prejudicial, it was discriminatory. It was Protestants, frankly, targeting Catholic schools. But what has happened over time is, is that that has evolved into a hidden general principle that is designed to restrict any public funding from going to faith-based schools. And one can easily see how that's a, an unfair advantage because some private schools could get government funds as long as they're not religious. And that's exactly what was at stake in Maine. In the Maine case, there are places where students don't have access to a local public high school because of the rural nature of the state. So student families could receive public funds to go to a private school unless or excluding religious schools. So this case broke through on that in the state of Maine and in most other states. Uh, you can't discriminate against religious people and religious institutions just because they're religious. So it's an important victory. 
Yeah, many ramifications we want to kind of walk through. So, uh, the Bla- of course, the Blaine Amendment failed in the U.S. Constitution, but these states would have these laws or these um, even in constitutional uh, amendments in the state constitutions. And uh, as you mentioned, restricted from specifically geared towards Catholics. Uh, the question then becomes is what are the ramifications for this outside of uh, the state, these these rural schools in Maine, for example, Wheaton College, where I serve as a professor and dean, uh, participates in certain government programs that follow students that they can use funding in, you know, private, religious, um, accredited institutions. Are there ramifications that are multifaceted for this case? Well, most of the lawyers uh, looking at this over the past couple of weeks have said that this will probably get rid of almost all uh, defensive Blaine amendments, but there are some targeted ways that this that this type of thing can still happen around the country. But I think that you're bringing up a bigger principle. On the one hand, we as citizens want there to be a high level of equality in our country. And what that means is that in the public square, whether you're religious or not, you should not be discriminated against. And so this court case and other ones are reestablishing a principle right from the American founding And that was very strong for the first 150 years of our country, that if you're a religious person or religious institution or your organization, your business is driven by certain religious values, you shouldn't be excluded. What's happened over the past 50 years or so is that places have been uh, religious schools, religious orphanages, religious foster care, churches, humanitarian groups have had their access to uh, government funding to do their work uh, restricted. So a case like Wheaton that you're bringing up, over the long haul, what people need to be thinking about is, are there ways that the government is going to deliberately try to coerce Wheaton to leave its faith values and accept some sort of new ideology? And these days, obviously, it's uh, sexual orientation and gender identity issues, which are the ones that seem to be uh, the ones that have strings attached. Right. And that's for us. Of course, Wheaton has made, obviously, some very public stands and uh, even engaged in lawsuits to make sure that we can stand where we stand. But let's let's talk about that and let's look at people who might view this differently because, um, you know, those faith-based institutions in Maine or those faith-based schools in Maine or, or other participants that receive government funding, they can and do say you have to follow certain beliefs or practices. And, um, you know, those could be uh, where someone from a different faith, let's say someone, an atheist, can't go to this Christian school because maybe it requires you to be a Christian to engage there. So you, the, this case says that the government can't discriminate on the basis of the faith of the recipient. You know, they were giving it, for people who don't know the context, they were giving funds to, or funding, funding was going with the student, to uh, private non-religious schools in Maine, and then they said they couldn't go to private religious schools in Maine. But private religious schools in Maine can also say this school is for Christians, and thus there's a discriminatory element, or could be multifaceted versions of that. How how do we walk through that line legally, and how does the case relate to that? Yeah, well, two of the cases in this term come down to a very similar question. The other one was Shirtleff versus Boston, which had to do with whether or not a Christian flag could be flown on a flagpole 
that was on city grounds, in other words, it was government owned, that city flagpole had flown just about every other type of flag you could possibly imagine. And it turned out the only one that wasn't allowed was a Christian flag. And so there's a similar principle here, and that is that government should not treat religious people, organizations, and speech different than everybody else. In other words, religious people and their organizations should have equality in our society with secular or other types of expressions. And so that principle was in Carson versus Macon. It's it's a similar principle in the shirt left case. And I, re- I understand what you're saying. Well, isn't it discrimination for a Christian school or a church to hold a certain set of beliefs and say, if you're going to participate with us, then you have to hold those beliefs. But that's a part of the rich diversity and pluralism of the United States is a recognition that religious people, religious communities, as well as other groups can have their own rules for their group, for their organization. That's actually a beautiful part of American life. And there aren't places in the United States where you're discriminated from getting an education. You can't get an education. The religious people are keeping you from getting an education. That's that's simply not the case. And it wasn't the case in Maine. People were not being uh, discriminated against about participating in education because they couldn't get anything except for some sort of religious indoctrination. Yeah, it's important distinction between the two, and that's where some of the questions might come forward. Uh, another kind of school-related issue was Kennedy versus Bremerton. Now, again, we're pre-recording this, and so there's a distinct possibility that this will be decided uh, before our uh, episode airs on July 2nd. But give us a little bit about the framing of this issue and kind of your thoughts around it. It's, it's a little more complicated in some ways. Tell us about it. It is. Well, the opponents to Coach Kennedy say this, and I want to I want to give their position first. Opponents to Coach Kennedy's prayer in public say, mm-hmm. by being in a position of authority, this coach, when he prays, even if he's by himself, is somehow mixing up government power, establishing a religion, and f- kind of forcing students whether they like it or not, to play along because maybe they're not going to get to start during the game or something like that. That's the type of insinuations that are often read into this case. But when you go back and look at the facts, what you see is that this Marine Corps veteran who then became went to work at this high school as an assistant football coach, that he just started praying right there at a game. And it was not a big public display. It was just him. There's a little bit more to the story, but it was individual prayer that over time, others voluntarily wanted to participate in, including students. And it wasn't even his own administration, but it was someone from another school who derided him for that and took it to his administration seven years into his career at that school. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't appear... I think to any reasonable person when they look at the facts that this was a person in a position of authority manipulating students in a, in a power situation where he's lording over students or anything of that nature. And Coach Kennedy, like any other U.S. citizen, should have the right to kneel and to pray, including in public places. Now, um, part of that conversation is that he was told to stop 
And talk to us a little bit about how that factors into this as well. And that had to be clearly student-led, things of that sort. Well, that's right. And this is a complicated situation that that went over a period of time with letters coming to him from the school superintendent and things. And he ultimately feeling that his conscience compelled him to not stand down, just as Daniel in the Bible did not stand down from public prayer when told that he must by public authorities. Now, I will note this. Coach Kennedy was not walking into a mosque and praying to Jesus. Coach Kennedy was not walking into a synagogue and praying to Jesus. In other words, he was not seeking out ways to be offensive. In his role as an employee who cared for students in a public place, he was simply exercising, in a sense, the whole of his person, his deeply held religious convictions. And he was praying. He wasn't preaching. He wasn't passing out tracts. He was thanking God for health, for the game, for competition, for safety. And all of that should be allowed here in the United States. And we're certainly seeing under this court, because we don't, again, we don't know how Kennedy versus Bremerton will rule, but we're certainly seeing some shift, what I would say positive shift towards issues of religious liberty. And we're going to continue our conversation uh, about this with Eric, Par- Eric Patterson in just a moment. He's the executive vice president of the Religious Liberty Institute. And again, we're pre-recording the show, but lots of good and important conversations here. So, um, so we'll continue our conversation with Eric in just a moment. As believers in Jesus, we know our citizenship on earth is actually temporary, but the days can be challenging navigating a world in cultural decline. A.W. Tozer brings help and encouragement in his book, Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. He tackles the how-to of confronting and battling worldliness while we live in anticipation of heaven. Be better equipped to take on each day. Read Culture, Living as Citizens of Heaven on Earth. Your copy is at moodypublishers.com. Okay, we're back. Ed Stetzer here. Ed Stetzer Live. This is a pre-recorded program, but if you've been listening, it's a pretty fascinating one because we have uh, really an expert in some of these religious liberty issues. Eric Patterson is our guest. He's the executive vice president of the Religious Freedom Institute. And Eric, is it is it just me, or uh, how might we describe the shift under this court in regards to issues of religious liberty? Well, there has been a bit of a shift, but If you don't mind, let me mention a double shift. Please. In the 1990s, about a half dozen major pieces of legislation were passed in a bipartisan fashion that had to do with human rights and religious freedom. The first was the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And unbelievably today, if you go back, the co-sponsor of that legislation was Chuck Schumer. (laughs) I don't think anyone could imagine that today's Senate majority leader, who is so radical and seems so anti-faith most of the time, could possibly have been one of the original sponsors of that legislation. There was also the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act that protected uh, faith spaces, if you will, churches, etc., but also protected uh, the rights of prisoners in jail to receive religious services. There was the very important International Religious Freedom Act of 1998, signed by Bill Clinton. All of these, by the way, were signed by Bill Clinton. And then there were specific uh, human rights acts targeting the gross religious freedom violators like Sudan, 
North Korea and the Global Trafficking in Persons Act. There was a coalition of Jews, secularists, Christians, and others that got this all of this legislation passed, and it was passed in a largely bipartisan fashion. People like Joe Biden voted for all of it. So it's so you fast forward to the last five years. Uh, well, you pass fast forward to the Obama administration, now the Biden administration. The attacks on religious freedom are just egregious, and they come from the highest levels of the land. And so there really has been a shift, and that's one of the shifts. Now, the second shift that you've just mentioned is over the past several years with Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch joining others on the court. uh, There really has been a a decided shift, particularly with the departure of of RBG, so that there is a more faith-friendly, in a sense, uh, Supreme Court. But, But I do want to note this. When you look at these recent decisions on religious freedom, they are so obvious that uh, people on the right and the left can get behind them. Ramirez versus Collier in March, eight to one. Shirtliff versus Boston in May, nine to zero. So even the liberal court justices recognize that religious people and religious institutions have been attacked for too long. Yeah. And I think there is a sense that there's also, as the particularly, uh, you mentioned the Biden administration has become more aggressive on some of these issues. It's been the court that has actually tempered some of that, which I think is important for us to acknowledge. Um, Because one of the things, you know, and we're not talking much about Roe v. Wade because that wasn't, or Dobbs, but that wasn't so much around religious issues, uh, certainly. And our last week's program, people can listen to. We had uh, guests on to talk about where the church goes from here. But religious liberty issues are are, are all around us, are prevalent. And and, and as you said, uh, some are being strongly decided and in and around. But these are where the areas get tricky. Of course, you served in the military. Um, I had the privilege of, I've trained the uh, Army, I've done the Army Chief of Chaplains National uh, meeting and mm-hmm. trained the you know Navy chaplain assigned to the Coast Guard and others, and some of these issues really come into places like chaplaincy. They come into places, so it's not. I think sometimes there's some people who are saying, "Well, they're going to tell you you can't do things in your churches." It's not so much. I mean, I can I can say and do a I mean, any pastor can say and do a lot of dumb things in a church, uh, and a lot of right things in a church. But it's more when these intersect in society. In the case of the main case, it was government funding. In the case of Kennedy versus Bremerton, it was uh, public school and praying in these contexts. And I think you and I would both agree that the coach, Joseph Kennedy is the coach, and Bremerton is the name of the high school, public school in Seattle area. Um, We would be the first to say that there should be no coercion. He shouldn't be able to, as a coach, say, you got to come pray with me here. If you want to be the starting whatever, I don't know anything about sports, the starting people who throw the ball. What is that, a quarterback? See, I know that. I just yep. forgot. Um, <laughs> we wouldn't want that. We would also want that liberty extended to people of other faiths as well for consistency. So that's sometimes harder for us as evangelicals. What are some things you would caution us that religious liberty for Everyone doesn't mean just practicing ours alone. Well, I think you're exactly right. And there's, I think, two principles there. One is we stand by 
the right notion of separation of church and state. Let me unpack that in a moment. And then second, the way that that happens in our society is what we at RFI call free exercise equality. So first, uh, separation of church and state is not a term that's in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. What it means as a rightful principle is, is that state, meaning the institution of government, should not be involved, manipulating, controlling, establishing an institution of the church, a formal federal church, or, or, or making decisions about this religion is better than another one. Government is supposed to be entirely out of that. Now, that doesn't mean that religious principles, religious people, religious organizations should not be able to fully express themselves in civil society. It means that the institution of church is separate from the institution of government. That's an important principle. And, and for we as evangelicals, we recognize that God set up many institutions, the first being the family, another being the church, and that government should not be taking a, a heavy-handed role and in getting involved in things that rightfully belong to the family or to the church. Now, how does this play out in our society? Well, we believe that the, the best way to think about that is free exercise equality. And that's that every individual and every religious group should be able to freely exercise their faith in our society. Now, that doesn't mean that I, as a Christian, believe that all the beliefs of another faith tradition, say Hinduism or Islam, I'm not giving tacit approval to all their beliefs. What I'm recognizing, however, is that they are created by God, that they have a fundamental right to seek God, and that I don't want the government coercing me or them and telling them what they can't and can't do uh, for 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 peaceful expressions of their faith, meeting together, buying property, building a house of worship, training their children in the faith. As long as there is no violence or violent coercion, we want to have this equality, this pluralism in American society. And that's how Christians here and abroad are going to have their best bet to express their own faith as well. Yeah, religious liberty for some generally means not religious liberty for long. Um, but at the same time, you know, this, those are not those are not easy things for many Christians. You know, I, I wrote a cover story for Christianity Today a few years ago uh, and on the right to proselytize, where people should be able to share their faith. And certainly as Christians, we would call that evangelism. Uh, but that's a uniquely Christian world word. But in describing that, I advocated for religious freedom, in, including... You know, people of other, not all faiths are missionary faith, but um, you mentioned Islam is a missionary faith, defending the right to Islam, uh, Muslims to share their faith, even to build a masjid near where they live. And boy, people people get very unhappy that, because we're not just, we just sometimes want to defend our relig religious liberty, but that consistency really, it really matters. And as a Christian, I think when we have the free exercise of religion, it's an opportunity for us to clearly articulate the true faith of the gospel. So that's my, my Christian view, but legally, why does that matter? Well, it matters legally because first of all, religion and religious people are the first great check on government authority. Why is it, for instance, in China or North Korea that the people that the government represses the most are religious people? And that's because they have an allegiance in a value structure that's beyond the Communist Party or beyond the cult of some individual. 
And so we recognize first and foremost, this is why religious freedom is the first freedom in the Bill of Rights, is more than anything else, conscientious religion-loving citizens are going to be the ones who obey the law. They're going to be the most moral. And that's a check on government power and authority. And the second reason is because of all the, the good that happens by religious people and faith-based organizations. For instance, charities, hospitals, foster care, orphanages, uh, pregnancy resource centers, humanitarian aid. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of people who their faith motivates them to help others. Now, of course, that's one of the great, great witnesses of Christianity. But, but listen, in a time of crisis or serving the poor, I'm thrilled to see people from other faith traditions motivated to help others by their own faith. That's one of the wonderful, wonderful things about the United States, the freedom to serve. And how would you say is appropriate, you're the religion, uh, you, know, you talk about this in your work, you're a Religious Freedom Institute. Do you advocate for people of other faiths uh, as well? Is it mainly advocating it around the Christian faith and others do the other work? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, our mission kind of gives you a vision of this. Our mission is to advance religious freedom in, in four ways. As a fundamental human right, that means it's for everybody everywhere because we are created in the image of God. Second, as a cornerstone of a successful society, you'll notice there's no places with high levels of civil rights, civil liberties, and economic flourishing that doesn't have religious freedom. And it's also a major security issue for national and international security. Religious freedom counters terrorism and it counters violence. We can talk more about that after the break if you like. Yeah, I think it's a good conversation and kind of talk about what this looks like applied in different contexts as well and the place of religious freedom in the midst of the conversation as well. We're going to continue our conversation with Eric Patterson in just a moment. Thanks for listening. Continuing our conversation with Eric Patterson, um, he was sharing a little bit about some of the principles of the Religious Freedom Institute where he serves. Eric, go ahead and pick that conversation up, and then I'll continue with some other follow-up questions. Go ahead. Well, I'll just say that the religious freedom as a principle is tied also to how we think about domestic and international security. Here's one of the amazing things. The places where religion is the most repressed by a government are often these highly religious societies like Iran or Saudi Arabia. And the crazy thing that happens there is, is that they breed their own terrorists, that there's something about oppressing religion that forces people, uh, it, it brings out the worst in people uh, rather than the best. And one last thing on this note about how religious freedom is, is a good for a society, and that is, is that it's a good for individuals and it's a good for groups. Individuals motivated by their faith are the most likely to tithe, to give offerings, to, to care for the poor, to volunteer time. We have statistical data from Barn and others that show us that. And of course, people should be able to freely congregate or to assemble. That's a part of the First Amendment as well. And religious people typically do that. They meet together to solve problems in their neighborhood. If you go to a, a neighborhood that has problems, Probably the first group on the ground is a local church or a synagogue or a mosque. We need to protect the ability of people of faith to come together, motivated by their faith, expressing their faith to problem solve in our society and beyond. 
Yeah. Now you talked a little bit, you mentioned Iran, for example, um, which is fascinating in its religiosity. It actually, people go to mosque at a lower level in Iran than people go to church in the United States. So it's, it's, a, it's an mm-hmm. odd way that religion is actually practiced and enforced in those contexts. But the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, um, actually talks about it, which is largely not, you mentioned is Muslim majority nations, but you don't see the adoption of that in part because of Article 18 that talks about the uh, right to change your religion, which becomes an important part of religious freedom. Um, so some listeners might be listening. When you mention Iran, Iran or Islam, they might say, well, they don't practice religious freedom there. Why should we have religious freedom here? If they don't adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights there, why should we practice and have freedom for them here? Why, why is that? Explain that to us. Yeah, the principle here is really a universal one, and that is that it's the right thing to do to leave individual faith primarily between God and the individual. And we as Christians believe that God is exercising his sovereignty by making messages about him clear around the world. We have a part to do. We have a part to do in missions. We have a part to do in evangelism. And then there's a part that we have to leave to God. The principle then is is that what we should be advocating for are the most opportunities for people of all religions to seek the truth outside of government coercion. And for people, my friends who are Christians who want to see missions work abroad, that's only going to happen if there's religious freedom abroad. But at home, our own Christian faith is only going to be robust when it's practiced in an ad, in, a, in an atmosphere of freedom, not in an atmosphere of government excluding some groups and picking winners over losers. That's not a great principle of religious freedom. Yeah, so good. It's so important. Okay, we'll come back to the U.S. for just a moment. One of the things that's an ongoing reality, this is not a case about to be decided, but I'm pretty sure it'll be a case eventually be addressed, multiple cases. And one of the biggest areas of conflict is around uh, the rights, uh, religious liberty and the rights of LGBTQ plus persons. Uh, We call this, for those who don't know, SOGI laws, sexual orientation and gender identity, and particularly the Equality Act. Now, now again, I'll just tell you, I've written on it. I've called the Equality Act the greatest threat to religious liberty in a generation. You don't have to agree with that, but I would kind of ask you to kind of weigh in some of the Equality Act. For those of you who don't know, the Equality Act has um, passed the House, but largely there's no expectation that in the immediate future um, it's going to pass uh, the Senate and uh, without going into all the votes and who's going to vote and things of that sort. Uh, but there's a symbolic desire, and all those people that Eric mentioned earlier who would have supported the religious RIFRA, what they were called RIFRA laws, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, is most very much so the Equality Act has moved them away from some of those things. So if you don't mind, explain the Equality Act, how it fits into this religious liberty conversation. Well, Ed, I agree with you that the greatest threat right now to religious freedom in our country is the Equality Act. And the reason for that is that it explicitly says that the provisions of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, both at the federal and at state and in state constitutions, do not apply. So what that means in practice is is that in the widest possible arena of sexual orientation and gender identity, whether you're a florist who doesn't want to support a 
uh, a gay marriage. If you're a doctor who thinks that it's both bad science and immoral to give uh, gender transitioning treatments or surgery. If you're a nurse who says that you don't want to participate in something that would lead to this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you are a faith-based school or a faith-based university club, and you have a statement of faith that, that privileges the biblical view of marriage between a man and a woman and God's design for maleness and femaleness, any of those types of things can come under assault uh, under the terms of the Equality Act. And it can literally bring the crushing weight of the federal government down on your church, on your club, on your school, on your business, on your nonprofit, or on your profession. So it really is a crushing, crushing load right now. I would say this, there are also some well-meaning people who think that there are ways to kind of carve out a very narrow set of exemptions just for people of faith, and that we can kind of dig a foxhole for ourselves, kind of jump in there, and if we will cut some sort of deal, add a few provisions to the Equality Act or similar legislation that allows for a very, very narrow set of exemptions for Christians and others, well, maybe that'll be good enough. But I, I will tell you that I believe that, that those types of accommodations will not work that such a compromise really is just like the person who treads the path before you in snow and just kind of opens up the path so that so that the next phase can get there just as fast or, or faster, which is the, the fully fledged Equality Act coming down like a hammer on our society. It's un-American and it's anti-faith. Yeah, and I, I'm trying to think in my head how deeply to go down this conversation, but it's probably worth your your caution. Of course, I'm, we haven't talked before, but but your mm -hmm. caution is probably around creating protect, a protected class that the Equality Act would do, and then carving out, in fairness for all, carving out exemptions and exceptions for Christians. And, and of course, there, there's been, you know, Utah has seen this, and Utah's the case everyone is as the example, but why is the protected class, well, explain protected class and why it matters so much in and around the Equality Act and religious liberty. Yeah, so for at least a couple of reasons. Here's the first one. How do you feel as a Christian about saying, we're going to protect ourselves, but nobody else? Right. And what I mean by that is the doctor who, based on his, who's a secularist, and who says, you know, it's really bad science. The outcomes are really, really bad to start trying to transition a young girl to being a male when she's 12 years old. That's The science is bad. The psychological data is bad. Suicide rates go way up when you start doing it. All of that data is terrible. We should not be doing that. And he's making that claim, that claim on a scientific and medical ground based on the Hippocratic Oath and his best reading of the data. These religious, these narrow, narrow religious exemptions don't apply to that. There's lots of people who get left behind when people of faith try to carve out an exemption only for themselves and not for the wider range of, say, medical conscience or professional conscience or scientific data. The second reason that, uh, that this type of approach is very worrying is because uh, just as a practical matter, it typically doesn't work. The, the advocates who think that there's a narrow exception for believers only uh, do not have a wide coalition uh, on the far left. The, the 
people who support the Equality Act are well-organized, well-funded. They passed it through the House, and they are going to continue to push that, led by this president who, on his first day in office, signed an executive order on SOGI just this past week. June 15th, he signed another major executive order on SOGI. Uh, This is going to be coming down the pike uh, through the courts, (laughs) in the legislatures, and from the White House. And uh, Christians need to just be very, very honest about what's going on and stand with other people of faith against it. Yeah, let me remind everyone, SOGI is sexual orientation and gender identity. So I want to come to the question of the courts. So um, I actually have become a friend of my uh, congressman here in this district. I'm I'm actually in the district that uh, used to be Henry Hyde's old district, which has a long history, uh, but now is represented by by someone who has actually very different views than I have on this issue. And I want to share with you his concern and then hear your response, um, because I think we've got to figure out a path forward. And we're going to continue our conversation with Eric Patterson uh, in just a moment here on Ed Stetzer Live. Thanks for listening. Hey, we're back. A pre-recorded program, but really a fascinating one. Really thankful for Eric Patterson taking the time to help us walk through some of these religious liberty areas. And so I mentioned before the break, I, I've, I've become friends with my uh, member of Congress. I think uh, I pray for him. Um, I think it's good that we can uh, have, be friends, and but strongly disagree. And one of the things that he would say, he has said, yeah, we're Wheaton College is in his district. But um, he and a significant number of other members of Congress uh, would support the Equality Act that would ultimately lead to, when you say defunding, I mean, not, you know, there's still people who pay tuition and people who are donors, but any participation in any funding that goes with the student that historically for decades has gone to the institution if it was accredited, et cetera, et cetera. And he would say, that the reason is, is not that he would not say that he's discriminating against us. You know, I say Wheaton College, but I could say Biola. I could say Taylor. I could say a hundred other Christian schools. He would say that, no, we're not discriminating against you, is that even though he might respect us and, you know, and think Wheaton College is a great school, um, he would say we're discriminating. And therefore, because of our standards and policies, our, our lifestyle covenant that relates to um, sexual activity. Um, our, we're, we can call it we're a covenant school. Not all Christian schools are, but you have to be a Christian to attend here. You have to you know, have a testimony. Um, so how do you answer the response to him? Is And actually, you actually have to get permission, an exemption, uh, to and the exemption includes the right to discriminate, the language that you're having to say that you're going to discriminate on the basis of your admissions or other things. So we're against discrimination. We're saying the government shouldn't discriminate against us. How do you respond to my congressman and others who say, no, 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 you're discriminating, and therefore you shouldn't receive government funds to discriminate? Yeah, it really is a bizarre situation because these same people say, well, what we want is we, we are doing this on behalf of diversity, right? That's the argument. Yeah. The argument is we want a diverse United States. Well, the way you have diversity is by having pluralism, principled pluralism. And pluralism means that you can have Wheaton and you can have a Catholic school and you can have a secular school and that they should all be educating from within their tradition 
authentically expressing the value commitments that they have. And so it's, it's remarkable that these groups who say, like your congressman, that, that he's championing diversity, when what he's really trying to do is to champion a sort of uniformity where everybody has to have one view, particularly when it comes to this new sexualized ethics. And I think that that's really the answer. The answer is religious freedom is a support to a robust pluralism, the right to believe, also under the law, the right not to believe, but for the government not to be imposing new orthodoxies on sex, gender, and other things that chooses some to be winners and others to be losers. So I will tell you that he was not persuaded by that argument, but <laughs> I think herein we find ourselves... Um, if the Equality Act is ultimately to be passed, which, again, I, I don't think you may have a different view. I don't think it's an immediate uh, I think it, the, it seems to be trajectory that way, but I don't think immediately that will happen. Um, where will the courts come in? How, how will because obviously this will become it. I'll go up circuit courts, ultimately the Supreme Court. Um, can we expect I remember some conversation we were having a few years ago. John Stone Street is a, a good friend. Mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. used to do a program together. Uh, Breakpoint this week, and when we were talking about some of the compromises that you mentioned earlier, uh, he said, "No, we if 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 we, it was better to take his words, take our chances with the courts. What are our chances with the courts if the Equality Act passes?" You know, that's a it's a very difficult one to say because it'll be interesting to see what are the what are the ways that the Equality Act. You know, who who gets hit first were it to pass. Most likely, I think that probably the first would be uh, schools, uh, Christian schools, most likely smaller ones, uh, because what will happen is activists will start to gun for small, you know, neighborhood Christian schools. They're not going to go after the big targets, the more well-funded historic Christian universities first. Uh, what they, uh, A second thing, though, that they might do is that uh, what we might find is alumni groups in many colleges. I'm, I'm an alumnus of Evangel University. I've taught at Regent University for many years. Many schools have kind of alumni Facebook groups of people who later in life uh, chose an alternative lifestyle, and they'd like to see their alma mater change. So we may see some attacks from alumni on those schools, uh, and, and probably would we would have individuals who would deliberately uh, seek employment and in a way to set up a, a court challenge of employment discrimination. So what will happen in the courts? I think it's a hodgepodge around the country. I cannot predict what would happen with the Supreme Court, although I would like to think that the Supreme Court would recognize this as the ruthless authoritarianism that it is and would strike it down as being counter to America's better angels. Yeah, just so people are aware, it goes up through a series of courts, eventually circuit courts and then Supreme Court. So if it does pass, this still means a long time before ultimately you'd get uh, judicial relief on some of these on some of these issues. Um, can I just point something out please. real quick? Please. We have seen how aggressive state governments in particular, but also municipal or city governments like in New York and San Francisco can be due to COVID-19. So we should be very, very vigilant because of how many times all around the country, governments tried to stop sacraments, hospital chaplains from doing their work, people meeting at churches, even out of doors, the ability of military chaplains to do their work, 
churches. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, as you know. But we saw the naked power grab of the federal government in every part of life. And we saw it from state governments like Gavin Newsom in California. We saw it in New York City. And that should make us very, very vigilant and very, very aware of just how much the other side is willing to throttle the church. Yeah, government has uh, aggressive powers and unchecked can become a problem. Now, you have um, some uh, some summits, some things you're participating in, the International Religious Freedom Summit, International Ministerial Conference on Freedom of Religion or Belief in London. Uh, they're going to be actually just coming up right after this show airs. Talk about this. What, what's going on there? Why is it important? Thanks. Yes, uh, the last week of June is the International Religious Freedom Summit. All of those sessions will be online by the time of this uh, earthsummit.org. And then the following week, it will be government ministers from around the world meeting in London uh, for a series of meetings. There'll be hundreds of civil society organizations, including ours there, doing training and events around religious freedom, religious freedom law, religious freedom advocacy. And let me tell you why it's important. First, if we don't champion religious freedom and, and practical steps that can be taken around the world, if we don't champion that here in the United States, how to counter blasphemy laws, how to counter apostasy laws, if, if the U.S. doesn't champion this, no one else will. So keeping the light on and the alarms ringing in Washington, D.C., and the collaboration across so many groups and great Christian groups like Open Doors, Aid to the Church in Need, Christian Solidarity Worldwide, of course, us, Religious Freedom Institute, Hardwired Global, uh, the, the, the cooperative effort to fight persecution around the world, to fight ethno-religious violence around the world is critical. And it's critical not just in Washington, but it's critical to bring governments together, to get them to commit to protecting the persecuted, to not make it a fifth or sixth order thing, but to make it one of the fundamental parts of their foreign policies. So I'm glad you asked. Uh, it's, it's vital work. It's work that we've been involved with for a long time. Yeah, we're going to link to all of that. And he mentioned the videos as well. So we'll link to all that at edstetzerlive.com. Uh, and you can get more information about Eric and the work of the Religious Freedom Institute and more. Uh, which, by the way, there are lots of resources that help us kind of think through some of these issues. Sometimes it can seem a little overwhelming, but these are important issues. Uh, very important for the future of our country, future of practicing our faith and more. Let me thank our guest Eric Patterson for joining me today also thanks to our behind the scenes team as always Karen Hendren our producer Courtney Young our engineer as well uh, tune in next week I'm going to talk to Dr. Julie Slattery about issues of marriage and relationships but to hear today's program again you can find it at edsetzerlive.com or the Moody Radio app you can also connect with us through social media Facebook, Twitter, Instagram all at edsetzerlive and remember Ed Setzer Live is a production of Moody Radio, which itself is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening.